0: All right, when we left off last week walking through church history, uh, essentially what we're looking at for uh, last week, this week, um, probably next week, and and possibly the week after, I'm not, it depends on how much ground we're able to cover tonight. Uh, We're looking at this earliest period from about 60 AD until the early 300s. It's about 60 AD to the early 300s. And as we look at this this time, we... uh, Showed you on the map last week that your core, really your your big churches, your major players in the, the early church, uh, it was the church in Rome, the church in Alexandria, there at the top of the Nile in Egypt. The church in Jerusalem was prominent initially, but after uh, Rome comes and sacks Jerusalem in AD 70, uh, they will not be quite as strong. The church in Antioch, which is up there in Northwest Syria, the church in Ephesus over in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Those, those are your major churches, and you're going to obviously have churches scattered all throughout uh, all throughout the empire, many of which we know from Scripture, others we know from history. And in these churches, you're going to see people, Christians, gathering on Sundays to sing songs of praise to Jesus as if He is God, and they are going to hear the Holy Scriptures read aloud, and someone who would be the leader of that local assembly—that would be called a bishop or presbyter, elder, overseer—using the scriptural titles, we would call a pastor, uh, exhorting how to live out. You're going to see them encouraging one another. You're going to see them taking the Lord's Supper, engaging in in baptism. There's going to be an emphasis on the transformation of one's life, and especially as that it, it comes across. Morally and ethically that Christ transforms our life. There's going to be a core doctrine that is preached that centers around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of these churches, we looked at last week several of the earliest church leaders we know about, the prominent leaders Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Papias, Polycarp, of course, who was, who was martyred. And, and, and as we get to there, it brings up what's going to be one of the dominant themes in this early period of church history. There's going to be two dominant uh, themes, and by themes probably the better word is two dominant dangers to the early church. One is persecution, the other is heresy. Persecution and heresy. And so we're going to do our best to try to work through those tonight and give you an idea from from, uh, roughly 60, 70 AD to the 300s what all happened with regard to the persecution. The reality is the persecution of Christians and, and local churches in the Roman Empire uh, took a, a lot of different forms. And in many cases, for much of the persecution, it was more local than it was what we would think of like a, uh, a nationwide communistic persecution of, of Christians like we've seen more in recent times. I'll remind you, as badly as the, persec- the church was persecuted... In the Roman Empire and in those early days, there have been more brothers and sisters in Christ martyred in the last 120 years than in all the previous history put together. So just so you kinda understand a little context from that standpoint. Now remember, initially, in the eyes of Romans, in the eyes of people who thoroughly don't give a rip, Christians are just another form. They don't even see a difference. They're just Jews. Well, there's some Gentiles who bought into Jews, so, so initially there's kind of a lumping together, of course. It starts to change a little bit in Nero's day. Nero's going to do some things uh, and, and attack the Christians. Christians are going to be vilified for a variety of reasons. They're going to be charged with hatred of the human race because they abstain from pagan rules and practices. Most in the empire will believe the worst about them. They seem aloof because they just won't do the same stuff that everybody else does. They're weird. They don't participate in societal norms or pagan customs. Not only that, but they seem to be obstinate. They just, it's just a pinch of incense before Caesar. That's all it is. You don't even have to really believe he's God. No, I won't do it. Jesus is my Lord. They were obstinate. They would not compromise in any way. And in this, uh, in this unwillingness to compromise when you're living in an empire that has in its own aspect uh, law and religion are wedded, to not take part in paganism, even if it's just customs, is to look like you are unsupportive of the kingdom and therefore a traitor. And so this refusal for Christians to, uh, to bow down, to, to change the lines, this is a danger to societal norms. You'll see as it plays out over persecution, it's a danger in the eyes of the, of the emperors, uh, a danger to the stability of the empire. Christians are going to be charged with all sorts of wild things. Christians are charged with atheism, which sounds really funny to us, but atheism because Christians worshiped a God who prohibits physical images of himself. You shall have no other gods before me. In what second? You shall not bow down to any idols. There is only one perfect physical image of God. His name is Jesus Christ. That's it. And so because we don't bow down to idols, they believe, Christian, we believe in an unseen God. They were charged with atheism. You don't really believe in a God because... You don't see him christians were charged with cannibalism because they eat the body of christ and drink the blood of christ in the lord's supper now you're going to go that just is the most stupid goofy thing i've ever heard when i went to ukraine for a summer this has only been 13 years Ukraine is a society that for at least the last thousand years has been pretty much dominated and persecuted by another greater kingdom. They are a society who is built and steeped in superstition and fear, and when you have a society that lasts like that for generation upon generation upon generation, it changes things. And the first church we were in, we would, we would we'd have we'd advertise uh, we're teaching conversational English. We're, we're working at this Baptist church in Ukraine, and understand in Ukraine you've got the Russian and now Ukrainian Orthodox church that can't stand the Baptists. They can't stand anything that's not them. So they have they have spread all sorts of crazy wild lies for generations. And so I began to notice we we were in this church that had a basement, and and students who had signed up they'd come and and when we'd sign them up they'd come down in the basement and they'd do a little interview so we could figure out what level of English proficiency they were so we could put them in the class. And you watched a good number of those people show up and when they saw you had to go down into this, and when I say basement, it's nothing creepy. It's like this room, but just down. All right, we're not talking like a crypt. You just saw some strange looks. It's because the Orthodox church over there has said for generations that the Baptists take their children into the cellars to eat their flesh and drink their blood. Now, that sounds crazy for our society, but understand there are people today in Ukraine who are scared to go down in the basement of a Baptist church for an English exam because they've been taught the same things that people in Rome truly accused Christians of doing. Christians were incu- accused, and this is so irony, such an irony, right? The Roman Empire, do whatever kind of immorality you want, but you Christians are immoral because you have love feasts. And you call each other brothers and sisters, even those of you who are married to each other, you're incestuous. They spoke. They were accused of arson, the fire of the Holy Spirit. They were charged with all sorts of kind of things because Christians would also remove themselves from normal act, activities of society, unlike our day and age, where if our danger is we're far too engaged with normal activities of society. In their day and age, you couldn't go to the theater because of all the immorality in the theater. You couldn't go to the, you couldn't go watch the baseball game because it wasn't a baseball game. They were out there in the nude running around. Christians just didn't go. So now they look aloof. Philosophers, uh, pagan philosophers, saw Christians as anti-intellectual because they rejected pagan philosophy, and I, I don't have I don't have his quote in front of me specifically, but Celsus. Uh, he, he, he believed Christians were just the dregs of society because only the unprofitable, the weaklings, the women, the children, the slaves, those are the people who believe that Jesus nonsense. All the intellectual, the elite, the powerful, that's foolhardiness. So accusations like these would come against Christians, and you have, as far as imperial persecutions, the first is under Nero in the, in the 60s AD. So when Paul and, and Peter are are killed. The next is going to be in the 90s under Domitian. It's going to primarily be in Rome and in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Why is that significant? Because it's under Domitian's persecution that John is exiled on the island of Patmos. Who does he write the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation? Where are all are of them? On a circular mail, right? In Asia Minor, facing severe persecution. It means we can't ever forget when we come to the book of Revelation, it had an actual purpose in the day and age it was written in because there are believers who are really being persecuted. Domitian, this is going to be when Clement of Rome is martyred, John the apostle exiled, and Domitian is actually going under his persecution, since there's still records of living relatives of Jesus, half-brothers, half-sisters, their descent. He's going to actually try to hunt those people down and take them out, because they're living relatives of the King of David. Trajan is going to come along right after Domitian. He's going to engage in persecution. It's going to be sporadic. And what's going to be interesting is Trajan is going to correspond with a man by the name of Fliny the Younger, uh, who writes, he's one of, one of the major writers of antiquity we get a lot of our uh, history of Rome from. And Fliny the Younger is going to have a, a government position, and they're going to engage, well, sh- you know, should Christians be killed or, or, or should they be sought out? And, and they're basically, Trajan's going to have a policy of, Christians are undesirable. They should be grouped with those who are we think are guilty of treason. But it's not worth wasting official resources to try to hunt them out. So don't try to hunt them down. But if somebody charges one with being a Christian, try them. If that person who says who's been brought to you as a Christian was willing to sacrifice to pagan gods, let them off. And if they're not, give them some opportunity, give them a couple opportunities to try to try to get them out. And if they're not, then kill them. So there is persecution that takes place. It's somewhat sporadic. Uh, And and what's going to be significant about this is ultimately it's not that Christians, they're going to decide there's not any action that Christians are guilty of that's a crime. Their crime is they're a Christian. The crime is they bear the name Christian. That's what the crime is. So it's going to be sporadic. It's going to be there. uh, Trajan reigns from 98 to 117. After that comes Hadrian, uh, from 117 to 138, he's going to continue Trajan's policies, but again, it's sporadic. It's not uh, as much there. You're going to have after him, Antonius Pius. Again, sporadic continuation of the prior policies. It's going to be in, in his reign that Polycarp we talked about last week. Polycarp is martyred. After him, you get to Marcus Aurelius. Now, Marcus Aurelius is a Stoic, and, and he's a very intellect. He's he's different somewhat than the other guys who've come before him. He's not a raging madman power dog. He's a philosopher. He, he, he's a Roman. He's, he's kind of classic. And he's going to oppose Christianity on a philosophical ground. And one of the things he's going to notice is we're, now we're facing attacks from barbarians in the north. And, and Rome does not hold the glory it once had. And there is economic downturn. And, and we're facing some disasters physically. It must be because the gods are angry at us. The gods are angry because so many worship Jesus that the Christians are bringing disaster upon the Roman Empire. And so Marcus Aurelius is going to engage in an active um, persecution of the church. Justin the Martyr, Pithynos, Blendina, all are, are notable persecutions. It's, this is all taking place while the Parthian War is going on. You've got the German barbarians on the Danube front, an outbreak of a plague. There's a call to sacrifice to the gods But Christians can't do it, and so Marcus Aurelius persecutes them. And and as I was refreshing through some stuff this afternoon, it was interesting to be reminded a lot of times we get this idea, um, or just mention that it can be that we get this idea that the early people who persecuted the church are just these raving, lunatic, hostile, hothead madmen. And the reality is among the Roman emperors, it was the ones who were more intelligent, more intellectual, and more calm and mild-mannered who persecuted the Christians the worst. And so sometimes who comes after Christians can look very different. Uh, You're going to have a little bit of a break for the rest of the 100s, for the rest of the second century. When we turn into the third century, 202, Septimus uh, uh, Cerverus is going to come. He's going to, he's going to, following a similar deal with Marcus Aurelius, we've got to get back right with the gods. We're going to take all the gods. Everybody can worship their gods, provided everybody is willing to say the sun god is the greatest god. Well, you know, if you're syncretistic and you have no conviction, that's no problem. Unless you're a Christian who's not syncretistic, and then you've got a problem. And so uh, he's going to say now, and he's going to take a little bit of a different approach. If I remember if I'm remembering right, he's gonna take a different approach. The aim of his persecution is not gonna be to kill as many Christians as possible because they've noticed the more we kill the Christians, the more people become Christian. The blood of the the martyr is the seed. Or as we've, that's the literal quote we've gone on to add, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. So their goal is not to wipe out Christians. His goal first and foremost is to prohibit people from becoming Christians. That's the aim. That's where the persecution starts with him. It's under his time that uh, Leonidas Irenaeus, who's a name we'll look at possibly tonight, possibly next week, is going to be killed, and as well as a woman by the name of, got to look at my notes, make sure I say it right, Perpetua. And I want to read you, I did not have time told someone, I apologize that you do not have a cheat sheet. Saturday night, my laptop completely died, and as we are currently, Chuck's trying to work on it, but as of today, we are looking at the fact that everything I have worked on since I came to the church is gone. So you don't have a cheat sheet because I'm working on a new computer now, which is great, but see if I can find this in here. But yeah, I I try not to think about it. It's really sad because it means every sermon, every Wednesday night, every cheat sheet, everything that you've seen or heard me do is gone because a motherboard decided to poop out. Now, why? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Hang on, why am I not? I'm sorry here. I want to read this to you, but I cannot find it. Give me a second here. I promise. I'm sorry. I'm keeping you waiting because this is important. Perpetua was a pregnant lady who, along with, along with five Four, sorry, four other individuals went forward to become Christian, and the way, and this this speaks to us specifically, the way that uh, you really displayed in the early church that you, in fact, were serious about your faith is was through baptism. Now, baptism doesn't save you, but it's to that public proclamation that you're proclaiming to the whole world. There has been a transformation. Who I was born into this world as has died with Christ. I am a new creation. And and so they step forward for baptism, and this is what cements their their arrest. And so, Perpetua and these these other four individuals were arrested and charged not with being Christians, but with being recent converts. Now, she's young, she's pregnant. Her father tries to persuade her to save her life by abandoning the faith. She refuses. She says, just as everything has a name and it's useless to try to give it a different name, I have the name of a Christian. It can't be changed. The judicial process was long and drawn out because the authorities really hoped to persuade the five of them to abandon their faith. Felicitus, uh, uh, sorry, per- Perpetua was a, was a nursing young mother, Felicitus was pregnant when arrested, and she was afraid. Now this tells you about the commitment of these early brothers and sisters in Christ to, I want to be loyal to Christ. I don't want to get off the easy way. It's the polar opposite of most of 21st century American Christianity, which is, Lord, spare me anything but the easy way. They're like, no, Lord, only give me the hardest way. They're like the, the apostles in Acts chapter four. Oh Lord, thank you, you consider us worthy to suffer. She was afraid that because they kept postponing the trial, she would be spared, and not be able to join her companions. But she prayed, especially on the grounds of being pregnant. But she prayed. She gave birth to a baby girl eight months, so a month early. Another Christian woman promptly adopted that girl. And seeing this woman moan in childbirth, in prison or jailers, basically, how are you going to deal with the beasts in the arena, you weak woman? She said, and I quote, "Now my suff- Right now my sufferings are only mine. But when I face the beasts, there will be another who will live in me and will suffer for me, since I shall be suffering for him. And so they threw three men, the first three men, into the arena. Two died very quickly. The third, no beast would attack him, and uh, as r- r- recording has, that it, no beast would attack him until he said, "Well, a leopard can eat me." And then a leopard killed him. And then they put the two women, Perpetua and Felicitas, in the arena. But to be attacked, and just to have an idea, it, it, we're not just talking lions. They were to be attacked by being trampled by a crazy cow. They were thrown by the animal. They, they rose up. Perpetua's hair became loose in all of this. And she asked for a break to retie her hair because loose hair was a sign of mourning, and this was a day of joy for her. Finally, the two bleeding women stood in the middle of the arena. They each bid the each other farewell with a kiss of peace, and they died by the sword. So you've got unbelievable courage in our brothers and sisters in Christ in these days, even in the midst of time where the persecution was not so much we want to kill you, it's we want you to deconvert, but if you just refuse, we're going to do it. Uh, Things are going to move forward. Now, here's what you need to know. You're going to get to, in the the mid-2nd century, you're going to get Decius on the throne. He's an old Roman kind of guy. It's all about the Roman gods, Roman glory. And what's key about Decius is Decius, Decius is um, his goal, or sorry, Decius is the first to actually uh, enact a true empire-wide persecution by royal edict. Everything else has... Maybe there's an edict, but maybe it's enforced here, but not in for, it's sporadic. This is now empire-wide, word of the emperor, empire-wide persecution. He's going to ask that people come and offer the incense offering and praise him as God. Paganism is going to be enthusiastically returned to, and this is going to necessitate the extermination of Christianity. And what you got to do is you got to go in and sacrifice to the emperor, declare him to be God, and then you get a piece of paper, stating that you made the sacrifice. And and you're good. See, look, I'm good. And so you had a response from a lot of believers. There had been a period of peace prior to this. And so the church was not as uh, um, muscled up, if you will, for the persecution. There'd been a period of peace. Some had never known persecution. And so you have some believers who just go running in. Yep, I'm going to drop my incense. I've got my sheet. Leave me alone. You're going to have some believers who don't go in and do that, but they're going to try to buy counterfeit sheets. So, heck, okay, I'm not bowing down, but it, and then you've got some who are just going to face it And under this persecution. After him will come Valerian. Under him, you'll see Christian property confiscated. They're denied right of assembly. Uh, Origen and Cyprian, who we'll see uh, later on, are both notable uh, uh, martyrs in the time of Valerian. And then you're going to have a period, uh, it's going to wrap up in 260, you're going to have a period of peace until 303 when Diocletian comes to the throne. Now in 303, under Diocletian, it's going to be the worst of all of the persecutions for the Christians in the early church. It's going to put all the other to shame. We're talking church buildings looted, destroyed, raised to the ground, Bibles confiscated, burned, Christians dying for refusing to give up their Bible, uh, civil rights, all suspended legally for Christians. Sacrifice to pagan gods is, is, is required, um, and you're going to have an intense persecution. And the crazy thing with Diocletian is what Diocletian is going to do, the empire is going to see a um, success under him. The economy is going to be booming. Things are going to be governed. It's because he changes the order of government. He's going to say there's four co-emperors. There's a western emperor and an eastern emperor, and then each one of them are going to have a junior emperor all under the guise of, I'm still the ultimate emperor with all the authority. So he's, he's the eastern emperor, and he's got a western. And, and Diocletian is not Christian, but the irony is his wife and daughter are. Until he enacts all these, and really these came out of, these came out of the emperor of the western part of the empire, had an enmity for Christians. That started with aspects, that started with aspects in, uh, in the army, Christians were divided. Some said, yes, I can be a Christian and serve in the army. Some said, I can't be a Christian and serve because I can't take another life. This is not a new debate. It's a debate we'll see come back and back again throughout church history. And that's, But it's going to make him go, wait a minute, what happens if all of a sudden we get in battle with the barbarians and all the Christian soldiers just say, sorry, won't comply with that order. We're talking about collapse of society. So it's going it's to be a series of this starts of persecution And then this is going to build to this thing. And then this is going to, until Diocletian, he twists Diocletian's arm, and Diocletian says, yep, here's the edict. We're going out. Persecution starts. And, of course, Diocletian's wife and daughter, they quickly make the sacrifice so they're covered. So goes history. Ultimately, Diocletian will retire. Uh, Galerius, the persecution will will end under Galerius, who will uh, issue an edict to stop all things because we've recognized we need to be generous as a government and tolerable and uh, but he will die shortly after that to which the christians will go your repentance was too late Um, and you will have that now in the midst of these make sure i know my notes correctly yeah in the midst of these you're going to have some responses to what do you do when you have people who claim to be christian and seem to leave the faith and then persecution stops and they want to come back to the church what do you do We'll get to those in a second, but I want you to understand that under that's going to start, especially under Decius, and go through Diocletian. You're going to have those things come up. Now, you're going to have what we call, in the early church, the Christian apologists. Those who give a defense for the Christian faith. And, of course, the most famous of the apologists is Justin the Martyr. Justin the Martyr lived from around 100 AD to 165. He's by far the most prominent of the 2nd century apologists, which which include uh, Quadratus, Aristides, Tatian, Athenagoras, Theophilus, Melito, and Hegesippus. Not to be confused with Hippopotamus. (laughs) Trying to pronounce all their names correctly. Praise the Lord, one day in heaven we'll know everybody's name and we won't have any pronunciation problems. He's going to write a variety of, uh, well, Justin's going to be born in Neapolis. Uh, He's neither a Samaritan nor a Jew. He's going to study under a Stoic philosopher an Aristotelian philosopher, and a, Platonic, a philosopher in the, in the school of Plato. He's going to be very well studied from philosophy. He's going to be converted by a man who used the Socratic method to ask questions to ultimately help Justin see that only Christian philosophy has the answer for those questions. So instead of just going, Justin, here's what it is, it's Justin, here's a question. Oh, look, this, and, and allowing Justin to kind of come to that He's going to impose one of the great early church heretics of Marcion, who we may see tonight, but probably not till next week. Uh, He's going to develop, uh, he's going to to wage the apologetic battle on four fronts. He's going to battle against those who call themselves intellectuals and are calling Christianity anti-intellectual and full-hearted and superstitious. He's going to go against the state, who's obviously bringing allegations of, of treachery and um, he's going to go against the Jews, and then he's going to go against the heretics. All, all four of those groups are opposing Christianity in some way, shape, form, or fashion. He's going to argue for Christianity using prophecy, miracles, and ethics. He's going to argue against the charges you heard me say earlier: incest, cannibalism, atheism, subversiveness. Uh, ultimately, he's going to be prominent in in Rome, and he is, and, and under the the, the the persecution going on when he's there is not one where. We're gonna we're gonna take him out. And ultimately, someone's gonna say, "Hey, he's gonna get crossways. He's gonna openly debate a pagan philosopher. From what we understand, royally defeats him soundly in the debate. And that guy's gonna go and say, "Hey, you need to. I'm charging this guy's a Christian, and Justin will be beheaded in Rome around 167." The writings we still have today, we know he wrote against Marcion. We don't have copies of that or against heresies today. He wrote the dialogue with Trifo the Jew, which was written as a dialogue between a Jew and a Christian. It centers around two questions. Why do Christians live different from the Gentiles regarding the Jewish customs? And why do Christians put their hope in a crucified man? Because remember, to the Jews... Christ, Paul says, Christ is a stumbling block because to the Jews to be crucified to be that's that's the death of a of one who is shamed to be hung on a tree is one cursed from God in every way it goes against everything they understand and hold to about the Messiah. He's going to write the first apology and the second apology. Now remember, apology there is not sorry; it's a defense. The first apology is going to be addressed to the emperor, written in light of the per- Christian persecution in Asia, very possibly the one that killed Polycarp. Uh, it's going to point to, uh, and it's going to drive in there, and then the second apology, actually the second apology, I love ancient documents, the second apology actually precedes the first apology in the manuscript, but it's, uh, it's, it's anyways, but it's second. So, the big thing he's going to engage in, besides just arguing for the truth, is he's going to engage in what is called the, the Lagos Doctrine. And so in a fight against paganism, which has all these different philosophies that are saying these variety of things, he's going to establish, how, how, do we, how do we come against this? How do we deal with this? He's going to establish the Lagos doctrine, Lagos Christology, which is going to lay groundwork for um, ultimately later on when you're going to see heresies arise about the nature of the triune God, the Trinity. It's much of Justin's work that lays the groundwork for those later pastors and theologians to argue. Uh, The idea is that there is reason and wisdom in the mind of God. And the logos is that reason, that wisdom spoken, articulated. Remember, the word logos is Greek for word. God spoke forth his word in creating the world, giving a separate existence to his word, right? God spoke his word and his word created, so the word is distinct, But yet, God hasn't lost that reason, that wisdom, that mind that went out with that word. And I know some of us are going, wow, that's really, really deep, Wes. Yes, and this was just normal stuff for these guys, which shows how far we've all fallen in the world of television and internet. The Logos is imminent in the world, meaning that God planted, as God used his words and created everything, God planted his reason in the universe. There's a rational order to creation, to the minds of humans. It's why we can engage in philosophy. It's why we can create art. It's why we can recognize beauty from ugliness. It's why there is literature. And ultimately, the true Logos, what does Scripture say? In the beginning was the Logos, the Word. The Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God, meaning the Word is God, and the Word is also distinct from the one we know as Father. who's God. Jesus, Jesus is the Word. The Word became flesh in Jesus, and essentially in all of this, He's going to, he's going to give an account, uh, looking at the, uh, uh, that Jesus is in fact the Christ, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the ultimate reflection of the reason of God, and in doing this, He's also going to create a a pathway, which is to say that when you look at all this pagan philosophy, if God is intelligent, if God who is all reasoning, if God who is all wise spoke everything into being, then if something is true, it doesn't matter who picks up on it or what words you give to it. If it's true, it's true because it reflects God. Two plus two equals four is not in scripture, but two plus two equals four because God is God and it reflects God. And so his point in that is saying, no, Plato's not all right, but is there truth that Plato may have seen because it's just general truth about yes, and so it became a way to all of a sudden engage with those pagan philosophers and offer a defense and a witness for the gospel. The apologists uh, were, as defenders of faith, they answered the popular charges against Christians and they made a plea for tolerance. Their idea was that, listen, emperor, you want to tear us down because we won't do these one or two things, yet of all your citizens, that what it means to be a Christian is to be a servant. We're here to serve you. We're here to pray for you. We just won't worship you. So why are you coming against us? We're, we're more loyal than your, other, than your others who are there. They stress that God is one God, not multiple, That, that God that God is the creator, that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are God. And they showed a distinct Christian intellectual effort on how to engage with, those, with what we would call cultural accommodation and cultural appropriation. Cultural accommodation would be a capitulating to the culture. Cultural appropriation would be going, you know what, you heard me use a quote from Lord of the Rings the other day. Lord of the Rings in scripture. But that quote in a, in a, in a secular movie picks up on a truth that is biblical. That's cultural appropriation. So this is what they did. Now, there were different responses to the persecution. You had these apologists who were giving defenses, and honestly, we have a lot more than what we know of. Just remember, i am remind all of us, when you're talking this far back in history, though we have many more documents than we do from the period of Moses' day in history, you're still also talking about a, do- a day in time where we only have a fraction of documents that existed, there are many, it's why we don't know the names of many people. It's why we don't, we're all used to living in a world where unless your computer crashes, you have endless amounts of documents that you can go look up. Or if you just had been humble enough to listen to your seminary professors and routinely back up your hard drive, that would have helped too. Or saved to the cloud or done a whole lot of things that I didn't do, but that's okay. Kind of. Not, that's okay for you, not for me. Uh, here's the reality. You had one of three responses, or one of two responses to persecution, Martyrdom, dying for your faith. Now, not every Christian was martyred. So, I, but, but we're talking responses. You either had those. You either had those who stood firm in their faith and were either martyred or somehow escaped martyrdom. But it's not because they capitulated. They just it either didn't affect them or they were spared. You also have those who recanted in various ways, depending on the nature of the persecution. Did, did that person outright? Hey, we heard, uh, Bob. We heard that. That you uh, that you step forward as a candidate for baptism. We heard you're becoming a Christian. Don't you do that? This is going to be what we do. Oh, you're, I didn't do that. I didn't come forward to be a candidate. You have that's one kind of thing. Or you have some who go, nope. Jesus is still still the Lord, but but I don't I don't think he'll mind if I pinch a little incense before. And I got my. P-. You have all different responses, and and just like today, all different reasons behind those responses. And so, all of a sudden, you have what's called the problem, the problem of the lapsed. What do you do when the persecution subsides and you have those who have remained loyal and firm under trial? No problem there. You're good. You're still in the church. What do you do with those who sought comfort and ease and left and now want back in? What's the right response Are we a church who's all about purity, and therefore they can't ever come back in? Or are we a church about unconditional love and forgiveness? And so what do you do? So initially, early, you have what we call the rigorists or the laxists. you can probably figure out from the name where they stood. Rigorists saw the church were saved people, separated from the world. You've got to remain firm. This would be the position of men like Novatian, Hippolytus, and Tertullian. Tertullian's a big name. We'll see him probably next week. Laxists saw the church as the instrument of salvation. We're, 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 we're to be used by God to bring and usher in salvation. And so part of salvation is rescuing sinners. They've fallen. We need to rescue them. And so this leads you to the, 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 the two, different, uh, two different two two different different uh, schisms. One is the, no, is, it would be called novationism. This arrived, uh, this began under Decius, uh, Novatianism. after the the Decian persecution ends, specifically in the region of North Africa. So you're talking about there's Cyrene, Alexandria, Carthage, you've got this north. In fact, this is going to especially be heavy in Carthage, which is over, if you're not familiar, uh, follow the boot of Italy, you got Sicily, Carthage is uh, seven o'clock away from it on the coast. Novation is, is going to start there. Novation is going to be uh, martyred under uh, later on under Valerian. So here's what the Novations were. They they were Orthodox. They wrote incredible works on the Trinity, but they were opposed to letting those who lapsed in their faith back into the church. So you 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 uh, you you dropped you dropped the incense offering. Nope, you're not back. Uh, you, and this is and this is going to cause problems because Cyprian, who would be the bishop of Carthage, he's going. He doesn't pinch offering, and he doesn't get a form. But he flees to a place where he can sit in safety and continue to write the letters and do the work of ministry that he's doing for the church. Now, before you go, well. I, that scumbag do realize jesus said you will be persecuted and if they persecute you in this town walk out dust your feet dust the duff off your feet and go jesus leaves an open door that you you can flee in a sense well at the same time we acknowledge there is a clearly an example in christ and all of the apostles of not fleeing and certainly not fleeing when the only means of fleeing is to apostate or 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 do something that is different. Then there's a difference between simply, "Hey Paul, they're coming after you. Let's get you out of Damascus." And "Hey Paul, bow down to the emperor." Those are two different things. And so uh, ultimately, uh, what's going to go on is they're going to call. They're going to call for. Cyprian's going to call for a synod. He's going to call for a meeting. Meeting of these guys. In which. Get to the right. He's going to call for a meeting of these guys to try to, sorry, I'm having to use my book as part of my notes today. He's going to call for, we're going to do the best we can for memory. He's going to call for a meeting to basically try to hash this out and come to a conclusion. And ultimately what they're going to come to is if you didn't bow down, if you didn't completely apostate, there's going to be a series that you you can be, you can be let back in um, at a certain point. For others who committed this level of capitulation, you can only be let back in the church on your deathbed. You're going to live the rest of your life kicked out of the church and on your deathbed, we'll, we'll let you back in. Uh, and then you've got another level, which is you, you went in there, you, you ran in there and, and did the offering, and, and you said that you're not, you're not a Christ follower, you're out, period, there's no, we won't let you back. And so they try to keep, create this compromise position in there, uh, and, it's, and, and then you've got later on, under, under uh, Diocletian's persecution, what's going to be called the donatist schism, which is going to, again, be the same idea. You've got what what is that what is the we want to be a pure church, you've capitulated and now you're just going, well, I'm back. Oh, I know is a moment when I'm back. like how do we know you're repentant? How do we know here's this question? you've fallen, you've lapsed into sin. pretty major sin because you've denied you, you you've worshiped another God. Now you can tell, well, I didn't do it in my heart, but you've got this major sin and now now persecution subsided and you want back in. How do we know? On the flip side, you've got, but at the same time, Peter fell and Jesus restored him. What is the right bound? This is the question they are facing. And by the way, church, it's still a question we deal with to this day. It may not always be over issues of did you lap under, per, lapse under persecution? What do you do with the church member who's, who's serving faithfully in the church, who's doing things, and then all of a sudden gets exposed for all of this sin that was secret? Well, clearly, we, we, most of us would all be in agreement. That person needs to step down and, and we need to do that. But how do you know when that, when is enough time? We don't believe as Christians in, in penance that you've got to work off your sin for forgiveness. We believe in repentance. We believe you're, if you're really in Christ, he's already forgiven all. But how, how do we know you're really sincere? how do we know you can be trusted? This is at the heart. I mean, again, th- there's aspects of this question that are at the heart of what happens when pastors fall, that at the heart of, if you've, if you've kept up with over the last several years Southern Baptist stuff about uh, uh, those who've been accused of sexual assault and abuse, and there's some who, well, they're repentant, they should be allowed back in, and there's other good, No. Man, if you can do that to a kid, you're not. No. Like, yes, you can be forgiven. Yes, there's a place we can create, but, but no, you're not allowed. This is the same question behind these things. Uh, I, watched, um, there was, uh, I, I watched a documentary on, um, actually watched two documentaries uh, on Hillsong. I don't know how many are familiar with Hillsong Church. Their songs are I mean, easily the standard bearer for most churches. You sing Shout to the Lord, that's a Hillsong song. That's the one that put them on the map big time in the early 90s. Hillsong had a very prominent, uh, Hillsong had a New York campus, and give you the real, the, the pastor at New York campus, a man by the name of Carl Lentz, like the ultimate definition of a celebrity pastor. And I'm not even saying I'm not saying that good or I just the, the true definition of a celebrity pastor. He's hanging out with people more prominent than any ruler and head of state. He's wearing clothes that are more than most of our yearly salaries. He's he's got a, a he's got a charming and charismatic personality that people gravitate to. He's at this church that is in the, the Mecca of liberalism, and they've got lines out the door. They've got all of this stuff. And ultimately, he was exposed in 2020 for having an affair with another woman. And then there was some further accusations. So there was this huge fall from grace. And in the newest documentary, and I, I, I some other pastors had mentioned something, and, and, my, and Bethany found it, and then I watched it. In this newest documentary, it's the first time he's been on camera in three years. And, I, and my mom watched some of it, and we, I saw my mom. I said, we both said the same thing, which was on one hand, again, I'm not making a judgment. I'm just, I'm giving you an observation. I watch the One hand I go, wow, there seems to be some genuineness of humility there. There seems to be, there seems to be that maybe there was a genuineness for ministry. He, he, he was kind of groomed to have some really bad habits. Some things were neglected. There seems to be. At the same time, you've got people who say he's a brilliant actor and cry, cry on a command. So it's what I'm seeing real. It's what I'm seeing not. Now, my point is not to make a judgment on what that guy is or whether. My point is simply to say we still deal with these same questions. Because, church family, we are called to stand firm in Jesus Christ and not bow down to anyone other than Christ, whether that be literally bow down to another god or idol or whether that be to bow down by capitulating to culture on things that are doctrinally untrue, by ethics that are morally wrong, by the very things that Jesus died on the cross to free us from. We are called to stand firm. We bow our knee before only one. At the same time, we acknowledge that it is possible to truly be a Christian, to fall to some level. We know as Christians we're not above sin. Any one of us, we can still commit acts of sin. And if we fall, what is the process by which we need to be evaluated and undergo to be restored in the church where we can't see each other's hearts like god can see our hearts where trust is restored, where community and fellowship is unhampered, we still face these questions, and this is what the early church faced. Here's the reality of this period of persecution as you move from, from Nero's persecution in the 60s of A.D. all the way up into the end of Diocletian's persecution. By the way, what's really going to pick up after Diocletian's persecution ends in 311, that's when we're going to move into the time of Constantine, and that's when everything's going to start to change just so you understand why that's the last one is the greatest. It's the harshest. It's the worst. Things are going to change. So in this early church, here's what we find. There is a firm belief in the church and the truth of the Christian religion. There is a universal outlook that the Christian faith is open to anybody who would believe, regardless of if they are male or female, Jew or Gentile, what variation of Gentile, slave or free. It is open to any who would believe there is an unbelievable practice of fellowship and caring of what we would call brotherly love and charity that produced local churches that knew each other, that wept with each other, that encouraged each other, that, that sacrificed of their hard-earned resources to care for one another, that had a true and real sense of community, and they weren't just coming to check the box off that they went to church that week. You see a combination of of deeply held religious practice as well as developing philosophical thought. There were Christian ideas that were acceptable to pagan culture. High moral standards. Some pagans valued monotheism. They they thought the prophetic revelation was, was interesting. But the idea of a Savior who dies in the resurrection of a body? That's a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to the Greeks. Christian miracles appeared to pagans like little more than magicians. Yet in the midst of this, you found a world that was harsh, dangerous, uncertain, and yet the church is living with a firm rock of hope while the society around them is weary. Sociologically, the pagans... Viewed anybody who wasn't a man and wealthy as nothing. Whereas in Christianity, there's an elevation in care of women, of children, of family, of the sick and the poor. What happens when the plague hit Rome? The elites left and who rushed in to take care of the sick? The church. Even to their own danger. And in the midst of all of this, a group of people that is primarily, it's not to say there weren't wealthy individuals in the church. We know that there were and it's not to say anything about is wealth good or is wealth not good, but a, a group in under, under an empire, a group that has no legal representation, that has no legal power, that has no vote. Remember, most early, you were only a Roman citizen if you were Roman. A group that at times under persecution, what few rights you had as a citizen of the empire were taken away from you. Made up mostly of, of the poor and the dregs of society. survives every single one of the persecutions thrown at it, and not only survives, but grows every time. Because God's got a story that starts with Genesis 1 for human history. It's going to end and begin anew with Revelation 21 and 20. The New Testament takes us up to about 60 A.D. with that story. And the persecution of the early church shows us that no matter how hard the world and the enemy tried to stamp out God's people for the first 300 years of the church's existence, the church didn't just stand. They shone the glory of God brilliantly. And God preserved them and grew His church in a way that we still see reflected all throughout church history and in countries today that are under deep persecution. The early church challenges us in response to persecution with our affection for Christ. Challenges us with with realizing a lot of stuff we say is persecution probably really isn't persecution in this country. I'm not saying it's not getting bad. I'm not saying that there's not some handwriting on the wall. But I, I don't know that we know what it's like to be thrown before a court for no other reason than you say you're a Christian and that's enough to put you to death. But our brothers and sisters throughout this world do challenges our love and affection for Christ it encourages us and calls to us. That's why I like to read some of these stories to you. There's going to be more stories in the in the weeks to come uh, of these people who stood for Christ. Oh sorry, give me p- please would you hold the cow back for a second that's trampling me. This is not a sad day. I want to make sure my hair looks like I'm joyous because it's a joyful day. We need to be encouraged, we need to be challenged. There's ways in which their witness is convicting. And ultimately, there should be a hope that we walk out with. It does not matter what is coming down the pike in the history of our nation that we're living in. As it pertains to whether or not God will preserve us and use us for his glory to keep moving his kingdom forward, the answer to that is yes. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm not saying you can't be concerned. I'm not, that's not going down the track of what should we be politically as believers in America. What I'm saying is to, to bow down and, and swallow in fear, to feel what I fear most days, which is I just want to go put my head under a rock. How am I going to raise children in this world? Will I even get to raise my children at the rate things are going? We're not the first believers to face questions like that. And unless Jesus is about to come back, we're not going to be the last. And the Lord will sustain us, and the Lord will keep us, and the Lord will preserve us. Some may go home in the glory of a martyr's death. Some may go home in the glory of a final breath. But the Lord is truly on his throne, and we're going to have to cling to those truths like we've seen in Daniel to walk like the early church walked when it didn't just survive, it thrived. So, 7 o'clock, let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the example of our brothers and sisters. We want to be a church, Lord, that stands firm. And we want to be a church that when people fall, we treat them and respond to them and seek to restore them just like you command us to in your word. Lord, we don't want to be a church that would look at Peter and say, nope, we're not taking you back, even though you, Jesus, looked at him and said, time to come back. And Lord, we also don't want to be a church that finds excuses to capitulate and to bow our knee to other, other gods and other idols that are not you. Jesus, do that work in us. Unite us. May we shine. Lord, this world is longing. This world is so lonely. It is so lost. May we shine as a community of hope. As a community that is bound by unity and fellowship that is it's not of us and not something we bring about, but it's Holy Spirit, the unity and fellowship that you and you alone supply, and we just walk in humble submission to you so that we guard and protect it. God, may we be a church that's not about us as a church, but Lord, may we be a church that's about what exactly you told us we're to be about, which is you. Jesus, we look to you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.